Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, friends. We know others are trickling in, but we're so glad you've joined us right on time here for Messianism, Zionism, and Religious Radicalism, Spiritualities in Israel. We're thrilled to be partnering with Hebrew Educational Alliance today. Hi, Rabbi Sherry. Glad you're here with us. Rabbi Sherry Grinsteiner um, in our uh, new hub in Denver. We're excited to um, be in deep partnership there. And we're here today with a great scholar and, and leader, Rabbi Menachem Creditor, who I've known so well, even though we've never met in person. Um, and I look forward to that hug eventually, uh, pretty soon. Serves as the Pearl and Ira Mayer Scholar in Residence at UJA Federation New York and was the founder of Rabbis Against Gun Violence, an acclaimed author, scholar, and speaker with over 1 million views of his online videos and essays. He was named by Newsweek as one of the 50 most influential rabbis in America. His 27 books and six albums of original music include A Year of Torah, the global anthem Olam Chesed Yibaneh, and the COVID-era two-volume anthology, When We Turned Within. He's been involved in the leadership of American Jewish World Service, APAC, the Rabbinical Assembly, and the One America Movement, an organization dedicated to bringing together Americans of different faiths and opinions. He and his wife, Neshama Karbach, live in New York, where they are raising their five children. Rebbe Nachum, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Rebbe Shmuley. It is an honor to be with you, with both communities, with everybody, and to see that we even have a footprint in Berkeley, California, with my dear friend Larry. Nice to see you there. Um, I would love to jump right in because as we will explore, the notion of how long someone should wait is at the core of our conversation when it comes to Zionism, when it comes to Jewish political activity, and an appreciation of history from both of those perspectives. So given all of that, I invite you, since we're going to learn a little bit of Torah, to say a bracha with me, and then jump into the text that I'll be glad to share. If you know it, especially because you're on mute, sing along. Here we go.
All right, friends, let's jump right in. Now, when you hear the title of today's talk, you hear a few different words that might evoke specific meanings for you. Zionism, messianism, religious radicalism. You might even hear the word extremism and think you know what each of those terms mean. But what I wanna make sure we do is approach this with the most charitable hearts to see in these ideas the nobility that each of them would ascribe to themselves instead of distancing ourselves from them and saying, oh, that's not me, oh, that's not me. There are elements that might surprise you in each of this, these ideas that if you remain open to it, might not change your mind, but might surprise you. That's not a bad way to learn. As Thich Nhat Hanh teaches, a real conversation is when two people speak and they're both willing to change their minds. That might not be the general feeling of American or Jewish conversation, but wouldn't it be nice if we tried? So I'm not out to convince, I'm out to listen, even though I happen to be the one speaking, I'm gonna to try to channel some ideas and remain open to the possibilities myself too. So here are a few different definitions to get us started. Number one, Zionism. Zionism as a political movement. Zionism as a political movement can be defined as the aspirations of the Jewish people to a homeland of their own. Now, again, that's a, the political movement's definition. That's not a religious definition. That's not a spiritual definition of meaning. It isn't even a response to history, even though politically Zionism was a response and has always been a response to Jewish history or the experience of Jews in history. So Zionism as a political movement is one of the places we begin. But at the same time, in order to have this conversation, we have to have the parallel. What about the notion of a homeland in the Jewish imagination, which isn't a political question? That's a spiritual question. That's a question that goes all the way back to a covenant with God in the text, that goes back to alienation from the land, that goes back to displacement after displacement until we eventually call it anti-Semitism, which leads thinkers who are not Jewishly literate necessarily to awaken their own Jewish consciousness and start things like political movements. But it's really different to talk about Zionism when we don't yet have a home. What happens when we do? And how do those two strands that I just named speak to each other? The political movement and the religious sensibility. What we're going to look at today are excerpts from excerpts. Okay, there's a wonderful book. I'm going to share a screen so you can see the title page of a good book that I'm recommending highly. This is a book called The New Jewish Canon. It came out in 2020, edited by two contemporary scholars, really wonderful thinkers, Yehuda Kurtzer and Claire Sofren, put out by Academic Jewish Press, and you can find out all about it here on the Shalom Hartman website. And what it does is it collects incredible thinkers from recent Jewish conversations, 1980 to 2015, and then excerpts some of their most important contributions, but then it does the most Jewish thing possible. It gives the voice to the next generation of scholar, people who probably today are in their 40s, and gives them a chance to respond. So we're gonna look at the thoughts of Aviezer Ravitsky, and Yehuda Magi, you might not know those names, but they're gonna help us, okay? Aviezer Ravitsky won the Israel Prize. Aviezer Ravitsky was an incredible, is an incredible thinker in Israel, a philosopher. He was born in Jerusalem, 
was raised in B'nai Akiva in Tel Aviv. In 1980, he joined Hebrew University's Jewish Thought Department and um, served as a senior fellow at the Israel Democracy Institute. He really, to say it simply, knew, knows what he's talking about and cares deeply about the project of Israel. Yehuda Magid is a younger scholar who has his political science PhD from Indiana University, and he focuses on anti-minority violence within ethnically divided societies. Why is all that important? Well, maybe it isn't, but I think it's important for us to know that these ideas are based within lived experience and with some very, very important background work being done by the scholars we choose to trust. Okay, that's a lot of introduction. Hope that's okay. Here comes some text itself, but first a story. Here's the story. You know what a batlan is? Batlan is a word both in Hebrew and in colloquial yeshivish, means somebody who like has time on their hands. A batlan can be someone who isn't focused on their work, so they have time on their hands they're not supposed to have. But a batlan also might be the kind of person that makes it to minyan because they're not a batlan. They're retired and they're choosing to be with friends in a circumstance that, you know, they're davening or not, but they're showing up. A batlan might be a really great thing, but in this case, there was a batlan who couldn't find a job. And they gave the batlan a job. They said, we're really worried you're gonna get into trouble if we don't give you something to do. So I'm gonna make up his name, right? His name is Chaim, why not? Chaim the batlan, and they give him a job. Your job, Chaim, is to sit on this chair that faces east. And your job is to sit on this chair facing east and wait for the Messiah. And for that, we'll give you $5 a day. Back in those days, might not have been dollars, might have been rubles, uh, might have been lira, I don't know. But they gave him five somethings to sit on that chair. But after the first week, he came back to them exhausted. He says, I quit. And they say, what? Why do you quit? We gave you it. You just sit there on the chair. Why did you quit? He said, waiting for the Messiah makes me exhausted. That punchline says a whole lot about our conversation too. If you have lived through hard times, my friends, and we all have, though these are universal hard times. If you've lived or if your family lived, or God forbid didn't, through terrible times for the Jews, waiting for the Messiah, is exhausting. And in that exhaustion, in the shift in mentality, Jewish history changes. We will not wait anymore, was the response by some. And that became what we now call political Zionism. I'm gonna put some text on the page. And for the first while, I'm gonna keep on talking and then there'll be a chance for us to go back and forth. So I know this is gonna be a lot of information. I recommend you finding this text and others and reading deeply. The Zionist Ideas, a wonderful anthology by Gil Troy is another good place to go. But this book, again, the new Jewish canon brings in lots of thinkers that you might find interesting. Here comes a little bit of the text. So on this page of the new Jewish canon, which is, um, an excerpt of the work of Aviezer Ravitsky, whose name I mentioned before, the philosopher, Israeli philosopher, he writes, and let's see if I can annotate just a little bit, and if not, I'm just gonna talk it through. Here I am. 
you can see where I'm trying to highlight. It's not working, but there I am. The establishment of the state of Israel and the reclaiming of the land of Israel thus stand at the very heart of a decisively messianic process. So we're gonna have to talk about that term in a second too. This being the case, the Jewish state can no longer be portrayed as a merely historical or social phenomenon. What a phrase. I wanna read those two sentences one more time just so you can hear them again, and then I'll move on. But I know that for some of us, this is the first time we're seeing the material and I wanna give us a chance to breathe it in and then figure out if you wanna breathe it out. The establishment of the state of Israel and the reclaiming of the land of Israel, two different ideas, thus stand at the very heart of a decisively messianic process. This being the case, the Jewish state can no longer be portrayed as a merely historical or social phenomenon. Its very existence is fraught with religious meaning. And in the final analysis, it appears to embody something, embody something quite metaphysical. Zionism is a heavenly matter, Cook went so far as to say, Cook meaning pre-State of Israel, British Mandate, uh, Palestine Chief Rabbi Rav Cook. The State of Israel is a divine entity, our holy and exalted state. Well, that's interesting. That's not what British Parliament thought with a partition plan. That's not what the UN thought. It wasn't about messianism. It wasn't about a religious idea. Those were political decisions, right? He's saying, no, they can't be seen only as such. In other words, here we go back in his words, the tidings of the redemption of Israel, the consciousness of present messianic realization have not only toppled the wall separating us from our land, they have eliminated at one stroke the formidable barrier between the theological and the political, the heavenly and the earthly. I want to say one more of his phrases, one that we just read. I want to say it out loud one more time, and then we'll talk it through. And again, I apologize for how fast I'm moving, but you'll be able to review the video. <laughs> that hopefully, we'll make it a little bit more English. The wall separating us from our land. What does that mean? What wall separates us from our land? We can have modern political conversations about walls that separate people from land. And that conversation is meant to be had too, especially when it comes to the question of homelessness as the Jews experienced it through time and the lessons we're supposed to learn about our own oppression never to fulfill, God forbid, against someone else. That has a lot to do with the walls that kept us from our own homeland. If you've ever visited the camps in Atlit in the north of Israel, where Jews had to smuggle themselves in but didn't want to be kept in, it was where we weren't allowed into the rest of the land. But what is the wall that keeps us from the land that Aviezer Ravitsky is identifying? Anyone ever sing this song during a really hard time? I grew up going to, going to yeshiva, and we would always sing this song. Whenever a God forbid was happening, be it personal, be it national, and as a caveat, I don't know that I ever sang it for someone who wasn't Jewish. And that's a learning that I've needed to do my whole life to come back out of, because the coming of the Messiah can't be an exclusively Jewish experience. But this was a song that I sang about the Messiah whenever a God forbid happened for someone else. Now you might know this, but listen to what I believe. I believe with a whole heart, with a whole faith in what? 
I believe in the coming of the Messiah. And this kind of song, if you ever sang it, you know what I'm about to say. The first half you get through so you can get to the second and then your spirit breaks and soars at the same time. The second half goes, now, first of all, it's very hard to stop singing that song, right? My childhood memories and my tears have already begun. I will wait for the Messiah, even though the Messiah is taking a long time, though he may tarry is the typical translation. Achak hello, I'll wait for him. Oh, I'll wait for him. Because clearly this moment, the Messiah hasn't come yet. Now, I, I want to say something about that. I don't want to attack these ideas. But I do want to put them into a historical consciousness. And Zionism, as you, I think, are probably guessing already, rejected the waiting. You'll wait. I'll sit and wait. We have seen, and I say this with with pain in my heart. We have seen what happens when we wait for the Messiah. I can't even say anything after saying that. And the early Zionists rejected religion in part because waiting doesn't work. It took until religious philosophers like Rav Cook and Rabbi David Hartman and Rabbi Yitz Greenberg and wonderful giants of our time to transform a Jewish religious consciousness into the acceptance of human agency, to see the divine in the human political activity of creating a state of Israel. But you have to understand, this is jarring to a religious sensibility. What is the religious posture when it comes to the establishment of what Rabbi Yitz Greenberg or Rabbi David Hartman Lavashalom call the third Jewish commonwealth? The religious posture of the third Jewish commonwealth in traditional terms, by which I mean pre-state of Israel terms, is wait, God will do it. No human being is allowed to, um, trying to say it in English, to make quicker the coming of the redemption. And that sounds interesting in my ears, especially given that Chabad's language since, since, you know, before my childhood was, every action you take can bring Mashiach. Every action can bring redemption. Why should I wait? How, how dare I wait? By the way, couched in that is, God, how dare you wait? Look what happens to us while we wait. How can you have let us wait? Right In that song, which is, of course, uh, an emotional outpouring, it's an expression of pain, incredibly healthy and important, is an idea that perhaps we are outgrown. I don't know. For me, I don't know how to sing that song and agree with it anymore. But when I sing that song, I feel its message. And there's tension in me and in our tradition. Because the wall that separated us from our homeland was our ideological wall. Yes, there are political movements that hadn't yet gotten started, and we had obstacles to face as a Zionist Jewish world began to emerge, 
We had to convince the world, and I make no equation between the Shoah and the founding of the state, because to draw a causational line damns everybody, including God. So I won't say this because of that, but were it not for the political moment in which the state of Israel was founded, I don't know what waiting looks like, but maybe we would still be stuck there. So, okay, as you might be able to tell, this is like, there is no more emotional conversation to have, not for our people. And I, I imagine every people living through pain and diaspora and persecution has this kind of pain. How much of this can I change? I should be patient. No, I shouldn't. Civil rights were always, leaders were always told in the 60s, be patient. And in an incredible letter from a Birmingham jail, Dr. King wrote about the price of patience. Right, so this is our Jewish expression of that. Zionism is, I shall wait no longer. This has cost too much. But the power of this, the shift that I'm, I'm going to bring us through in terms of ideas, which I find incredibly compelling as a religious Zionist myself, is because it's not a rejection of tradition if tradition changes to, began, to begin incorporating human agency as part of God's intention. The danger of that should be clear too. Because if I say I'm acting in the name of God, God forbid what I would do. As a teacher of mine, Rabbi Erwin Kula says, when I'm sure that I have more God than you, I'll go get a gun. So I'm not in favor of that to be clear. So the question is how to transform a God consciousness for a Jew or for the Jewish community and not to weaponize it, to learn from the helplessness of pre-state of Israel, Judaism, to learn the lessons of anti-religious early Zionist Jewish political movements, and then how to live a synthesized religious life within the political moment without forgetting that now I'm called to act with ethics on the power I never had before. So much power that I even describe it as including God's intention. Woe is me if I don't do this carefully. So, all right, that was already a lot and I'm, I'm gonna catch my breath for a second as I share the screen. Okay, now, as I said, in this book, The New Jewish Canon, we have the original author, and then we have a second generation scholar. So we had, by second generation, uh, it's just an arbitrary moment in time that I'm pointing to. So this was Ravitsky that we looked at. I'm gonna scroll down, you get to watch me. And here comes the commentary by Yehuda Magid. And I'm just gonna read how he introduces his response. Trigger warning, this is not gentle. On the night of July 31st, 2015, the Dawabsha family returned to their home in the central West Bank village of Duma from a, from a visit with relatives and went to bed. Between 2 and 4 a.m., a masked Israeli settler by the name of Amiram ben Uliel smashed a bedroom window and threw a Molotov cocktail through it. Both parents emerged from their home enveloped in flames and both would succumb to their injuries within weeks. Their 18-month-old son, Ali Saeed Muhammad Dawabsha, did not escape and was killed at the scene. Within weeks, Ben Uliel was arrested and tried both for the crime and for his membership 
in a terrorist network. On February 21st, 2017, Iran held the sixth iteration of its international conference in support of the Palestinian Intifada. The anti-Zionist conference was replete with anti-Israel rhetoric and support for Palestinian resist resistance against the state of Israel. While the event was standard fare in Iran, the presence of black clad Hasidim from the Nature Karta sect sitting attentively in the audience was jarring. While diametrically opposed in their support or rejection of Zionism, the behavior of radical religious Zionists and ultra-Orthodox anti-Zionist behavior may be explained according to Aviezer Ravitsky by the modern crisis of Messianism. Now, I wanna give you a second because that's a lot too. That is a lot. And the last thing I wanna do is bombard us with, first of all, what sounds like agenda, political agenda, anti this, anti that, that's not this conversation. We're talking about how ideas can be used in multiple ways. And the idea of the Messiah and the requirement that the Messiah and God bring the next Jewish moment would lead some, and Nature Karta and Satmar are two Haredi organizations, communities, who believe that the action of creating what is a secular Jewish national state is heresy. Remember, what's the Jewish posture when it comes to the Messiah? Wait. So if I'm no longer waiting and I take it into my own hands, I am acting in the place of God. Another word for that is heresy, heretical. The modern state should not exist. Now, obviously, that's not how I feel. I've told you already I'm a religious Zionist. I have a lot of criticism and thinking that I do as part of that religious Zionism. I'm imagining I'm not alone. I'm imagining it gets us into very complicated conversations. Please God, we remain friends and have them as loving hearts who can learn to disagree. But the power of this is profound. Does the state of Israel have religious significance for someone who believes that only God is supposed to create it? The answer is yes, it has religious significance. It is a sin. But the other side of it can also be described as messianic, which is only Jews should live in the modern state of Israel. Because the coming of the Messiah from a tribal, literary, Jewish, spiritual statement is, that's our home and only ours. Obviously, I, well, maybe it's not so obvious. I don't feel that way at all. There has to be a way, at least some would say, for us to be able to hold all of these in one hand at one time. That causes a lot of tension to a sensitive Jewish heart, to any human heart. But what's important to understand and what Yehuda Magid helps us do in his juxtaposition of two horrific current events is to tell us that if we're not careful, we end up, God forbid, with one or God forbid with the other. And neither of them represents the synthesis that we are trying to achieve, or at least that modern religious Zionism is trying to achieve. And so what we're gonna look at now, follow, follow how I describe this, is Magid's description of what Ravitsky's 
teachings say. I'm gonna say that one more time so that everyone knows what I'm about to do. I'm gonna share a screen which includes Magid's synopsis of some of Ravitsky's most dense work, okay? So once I do this, I'm gonna speak for a few more minutes and then I'm really happy to open it up to conversation, okay? So again, here comes a little bit of Yehuda Magid's teaching on uh, Ravitsky in an attempt to show the different responses that the Orthodox world showed to Zionism, okay? So here we go. See if I, let me highlight. Yeah, there you go on your screen, right? Anybody whose camera's on, give me a thumbs up to see that, show me that you saw the heads up. All right, there you go, the highlights. Ravitsky examines four ways in which Orthodox Jewry responded to the success of the Zionist movement. Okay, here are gonna be four. First, groups such as Naturi Karta and Satmar have adopted ardently anti-Zionist positions viewing Israel as an abomination, even the work of Satan, Satan. These groups reject the secular nation of the Israeli state and also vociferously reject the notion of Jewish sovereignty prior to redemption. I'm gonna come back to the text in a second, but this is position number one. You can sum it up in a very ugly sentence. Israel is a sin. One religious response to the founding of the state of Israel is sinful, right? We are not to do that. Doing it is a violation of a rule, okay? So one orthodox response as recorded by Ravitsky is that. Here comes response number two. Oh, uh, sorry, one more sentence. According to this view, a pre-Messianic Jewish theocracy, right? If everyone kept Torah in the most fundamentalist of ways, is just as heretical as a democratic and secular state, because no matter what you do, it shouldn't be there. Okay, second, the leaders of the Agudat Israel movement have taken a more moderate and pragmatic stance. You'll tell me if you think this is moderate and pragmatic when we're done with it. While they reject the notion that Israel's founding heralded redemption and that Jews are living in a post-exilic era, they are willing to cooperate with and even participate in the institutional framework of the state in the name of protecting Jews in exile. So let's make this one simpler too. The first position is Israel is a sin, right? That's what we would align with Nuturi Karta and Satmar. The second position, which we can identify with Agudat Yisrael, right, is utilitarian. We need a safe haven. For the sake of saving Jews, we'll help this thing happen, but this is not anything religious. Functionally, it's a big kibbutz, or it's a, it's a shul with really strong walls, right? There's no religious significance to the land, or to our existence on it right now, but it's a safer place for our people and we are in need, okay? So again, first one is sin, second one, sanctuary. Okay, here comes a little bit more. Remember, there are gonna be four total. Here comes number three. Third, messianic religious Zionists represented by the teachings of Abraham Isaac, Isaac Cook, who we just learned before, 
and his son, Tzvi Yehuda Kuk, adopt an ardently Zionist position, which is founded on the belief that the Zionist project is an integral part of the process of redemption. So I, I've tried to figure out good language for this one. I, I, I would sort of say it like this. It's as if God is peeking out from heaven saying, you might not know that you're helping me, but you're actually helping me. I don't have a word for that, but it's that kind of voice in the most rugged of historical circumstances. No one should want this because no one should need the help. The fact that we need the help tells you that we need heaven's help. I know that's a tautology, but you know why I'm saying it that way. So even the secular anti-religious Zionists who broke their backs to create this haven, who saved the Jewish people through what some would have called heresy, they were agents of God. And there's some very interesting dialogues that have been written between secular leaders of pre-state British Mandate Palestine and Rav Cook's office, where some of them who were very well versed in Jewish tradition said, Rabbi, don't tell me what I don't know and don't tell me I'm doing it for God. You're wrong. I'm not doing it for God. It's not God. There is no God. I'm doing this for our people. To which Rav Cook might say, I know, we're saying the same thing. To which they would say, no, we're not. But for both of them to be right feels fine to me. Realize the creativity of this response. Rav Cook says that everything is a stirring of the mess messianic era, even by those who don't know it, even by those who don't believe in it. The mysticism of that, to see God in the invisible stirrings of history. Now, I say that with longing in my heart, but I have to for the sake of ethics, also acknowledge how dangerous that is. To see God in the stirrings of history, there have been people who believe that they are fulfilling God's will in history, and that doesn't go well for all people. Now, I see a few questions in the chat that I want to get to, but before I do that, I want to do the fourth position that, um, that Yehuda Magid is helping us see in Aviazer Ravitsky's work. So the final position. Finally, Chabad Hasidism believes, consistent with the teachings of the seventh Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, that Orthodox Jewry should actively work to increase the religiosity of Israel's Jewish population and bring Israel's institutions and policies in line with Jewish law and tradition. Chabad demands that the Israeli government take a radically hawkish stance on the relations between Jews and non-Jews in Israel, Palestine, stridently supporting the extension of Jewish sovereignty to all of Eretz Israel, right, biblical or slightly post-biblical notions of the boundaries of the land of Israel, not the same as the state, yet without identifying as Zionists. Overall, this is his sum up, overall, what Z Messianism, Zionism, and Jewish religious radicalism makes clear, that's Ravitsky's book, is that the tension between Messianism and Zionism has produced highly divergent responses from the Orthodox community, and that it is one of the central challenges of Jewish modernity. Now, before I open it up, 
I want to say something not about Orthodox Jewry, because this seems to be wrapped up in Orthodox Jewry. And specifically, I might be a scholar of Judaism, but I'm not an Orthodox Jew. The last thing I should do is say that I know from the inside any of these truths, and that I've got none of the issues Ravitsky is pointing to in whatever part of Judaism I might identify with. I've quoted Rabbi Yitz Greenberg already, one of my fam favorite quotes of his, which has been shared in lots of different ways, but I like this version of it most. I don't care what kind of a Jew you are, as long as you're a little bit ashamed. If I can feel a little bit of embarrassment within me because I'm not perfect, even the part of Judaism I celebrate and call home has got stuff that needs fixing. I went to the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York the heart, in, in, my, in my mind, the heart of the conservative movement, where my, parent, my father went and my sister became a rabbi, and I, it's a very special place to me. But in 1967, during the commencement exercises, which were just as Israel was fighting in the 67 war, the students asked the flag to be displayed and for Hatikva to be sung, and the chancellor of the seminary then said no. So the students went and hung the flag from one of the windows overlooking the quad. And the chancellor stopped the proceedings until the flag was removed and then continued again. Now, clearly, clearly, things have changed since 67, especially since 67. And the recognition that Zionism plays an important part in the heart of Jewish consciousness, religious, secular, political, and cultural today. I don't think that's an argument that needs to be made, but I don't want any of what I've said to come across as tearing at a part of our people. The tension within our people's history and thought is fruitful and complicated. And I find myself humbled by it because none of our people have emerged unscathed from history. And Zionism is our chance to get it right, to take care of ourselves. And if we do it right, to wield enough strength to actually take care of others, to do it right, to get it right when we finally have the power with which to do so. So I'm thrilled at the chance to be learning together. I'm honored that this is the topic that I got to share here in this holy space, this Zoom room and beyond with good souls from all around. Because if Zionism has taught us one thing, it's that we can show up. We might not agree, but we are effectively showing up now as a people. So even before we have the rest of our conversation, I wanna bless us that we should show up open to each other's hearts, knowing that no one gets through life unscathed and that we're all coming with some pain as we have these conversations with significant worry and with, I'll say this, intentionally hopeful hearts. Right. So it's my honor to open up the conversation, to hear questions from you. I'll give it a second for, for you to generate your questions. And then I see some that were waiting in the chat and I'll get to those uh, if the opportunity presents itself. I think that you can unmute. Um, Lauren, I'm asking you to unmute. Okay. Okay. Oh. Hi. Um, yeah. Just to put it into perspective, I grew up me, and I remember when Mizrahi was a moderate um, party that was kind of the go-between between Chiloni and, and um, Haredi. 
my heart is broken as somebody who's a Telumi. I see people like Smotrich, you know, uh, is there any, any modern Orthodox Datilumi left in Israel that, that's moderate and hasn't gone like completely into a xenophobic way of thinking? So I, I'll answer like this with humility. First of all, honoring the pain that you're feeling. Um, and also translating a little bit for some of us who might not have all of those terms that, right, historically there were parties in Israel that identified as religious and were intentionally moderate and served as a bridge between different parts of our community to keep us loving. <laughs> I'll say it like that. Gen gentle as, you know, as gentle as anyone maybe is, um, but more loving. And is there hope for that kind of modern religious sensibility? And the answer is yes. It's a big fight happening in, in Israel right now. And, and our teacher, Reb Shmuley, has been part of that work along with networks of rabbis in Israel and in the diaspora that identify in lots of ways, including Orthodox, which is an important part of Israel's internal social conversation. Because at least for now, Orthodox equals potentially establishment, and the work done within that to have a moderating influence on the God forbids of extremes. I think that's very important. But what's also important is that the extremes include not religious thought at all. The problem, and by which I don't mean a problem, but the problematics of having a nation state as a, a, as a religious people look like this. We have come with all of our tradition and we named our tanks Merkava. Think about that. And actually, those are the outdated models. Those are not the current models in, in the in Sahel and the IDF. But the name of the tank for a long time was Merkava. What does Merkava mean? Chariot. What does that come from? From the messianic vision of Yechezkel, of Ezekiel the prophet, which means our army is God's army? Oh my God, what has that done to Jewish consciousness? Except maybe we should be worried about where we ride God's chariot. Similar to when Eliezer ben Yehuda used the word from Yechezkel also of crackling God energy to describe chashmal, that's the word in, in the, the biblical book, to describe modern electricity. It means nothing we do is devoid of religious meaning. So even though I'm not answering your question from a place of geopolitics, which is where you are asking it, that's not my field. My field is to worry like you and to bring us into Jewish historical consciousness saying, we asked for these problems. We really did. We might not have known it, but scholars like Gershom Shalom knew we were, he said, be careful what you do with Hebrew language. It's like, and this is a quote from Pirkei Avot in the end, even though he didn't say he was quoting Pirkei Avot, right? Be careful with your words because those words will whistle like coals when they're invisible. If you've ever had a barbecue, it's not when you can see the flame that they're hottest. It's when you can't see the flame, but they whistle if you blow on them. He says that in a very famous essay about Hebrew language. They thought, he said, they thought they could neuter our language and make it a secular Jewish language. He said, that's not how this is gonna work. And it turns out he was right. But that's because I think our people have been compressed like coal for so long, and we've held in the fire for so long that it takes a lot of effort to show what, again in Pirkei Avot, we call gvura, real power, 
real power in a Jewish consciousness is restraint. That's much harder to show on the national stage. So I so appreciate your question. It's really hard to show that kind of self-moderating capacity. But I think that that's the consciousness we're supposed to cultivate. And I know, thank God, that there are wonderful people on the ground in Israel working on that now too. Thank you, Lauren. Anybody else? I'm opening it up. You can feel free to ask to be unmuted. We'll then unmute you. Then you can ask, ask a question if you'd like. All right, so I'm gonna read one of the questions from the chat, okay? And then uh, I see, I see uh, partners, partners in presenting here. We'll see if, uh, if this comes to the close, right? So Judy had asked before, how does the waiting mentality square with the story of Nachshon ben Aminadav? Right, it's a really, really important question, actually. It gets to the heart of what we were saying before, and I might have addressed it in a sort of a more long-winded way. I'll try to keep it short for this one, which is, for those who don't know, the story of Nachshon ben Aminadav happens in Jewish imagination. It's actually not in the Torah. There is a character named Nachshon in the Torah, but the story tells of something we don't read in the biblical text. When Moses and Miriam and Aaron stood with the children of Israel at the brink of the Red Sea being pursued by Pharaoh's chariots right after the beginning of redemption which is quite an interesting phrase to share in a conversation about Zionism. They stood and the waters, who knew what was gonna happen? They didn't know, nothing had happened yet. And so they looked at God, God said, why are you talking to me, Moses? You know. Now the next thing in the text says, Moses held his staff and the waters all night blew with an Eastern wind and eventually dry land was revealed. But in the Midrash, the story goes like this. So Moses held his hand expectantly and nothing happened. And nothing happened and nothing happened until a prince. It turns out, I think to be, according to Midrash, Moshe's either nephew or, anyway, he was a hero. And we're all supposed to aspire to Nachshon's way of taking that first step. He steps into the water and nothing happens. And he moves into the water and nothing happens. But when the water reaches his chin and God forbid he's going to drown and Midrash has it that he's singing Micha Mocha, who's like you, God, the waters then split because he took the steps and didn't wait. So how does the notion of waiting square with Nachshon ben Aminadav? Maybe Nachshon provides a bridge story, which is to say human agency results in the miracle you were waiting for. When we act, that is God acting through us. I wrote a song once that ends with the English words, and if we build this world from love, then God will build this world from love, which ultimately means, and some will call it heresy and some will call it traditional, that when we act, that is God acting through our hands, especially when we do so with love. So, Friends, big conversation, big moment. And I'm really glad to be sharing it with you. I'm glad to be open to another question if you'd like. And if not, I'm going to hand it back to my friend, Reb Shmuley. Anyone else want to jump in here? It looks like there's a question in the chat. If you want to read that out loud, Rabbi Shmuley. Great. This is from our dear friend, Steve Shobin. PBM board member, sometimes I wonder if I'm actually Jewish because I can't relate to the words coming of Messiah and redemption. 
What will the world look like if those occur? And how do we know they haven't happened yet? <laughs> oh, what a beautiful question. And what a beautiful way of saying it too. Look, I think words are meant to represent big ideas. I use the word God when I know nothing can contain the infinite. And when I say I believe, I'm, I'm not always sure what I mean either. I just know that there's something beyond the self and a better day for my children than is obvious. Some of that is because I know we're all fighting for it. And some of it is because I can't live any other way. And so what will the world look like if those occur, the coming of the Messiah? And how do we know if they haven't happened yet? So I, I wanna leave us smiling and I wanna say it in the, in the most uplifting of ways. And you know that I'm responding to the world as we have it, right? So Rabbi Mark Angel, really phenomenal teacher, the leading voice in American Sephardic and global Sephardic history, um, once wrote in a reflection about his own rabbinate. He's quoting um, Gershom Shalom, actually, who I just quoted a second ago. And he says, um, I'm a mystic, by which I really mean you, Steve, uh, and, and hopefully me too. And I don't mean to assume, I'm just blessing you with it. Um, a mystic is someone who has an intimation of the way the world ought to be and is in severe pain because the world is woefully far from how it ought to be and dedicates their life towards lifting this world closer by one inch to where it is supposed to be, knowing it's likely not to happen. I think there's a realism that has to come along with this kind of modern Jewish mysticism. If no one calls it redemption and everyone has enough to eat, I'll consider that Mashiach. And we can disagree about what we call it and who did it, but if everyone's safe, that's fine. That's really fine. And so I wanna bless us with a world that looks like that. Call it what you may. Call it what you'd like. And maybe we can all dedicate ourselves. And I think Zionism at its best is this too, at its best, towards wielding the power we have in order that people should have what they need. Jewish history has not been so simple as to make that sentence easily acceptable. I once defined Zionism like this, and I'll, I'll close with this. Zionism is, <clears throat> excuse me, Zionism is the ethical use of power we wish we didn't need. Because wouldn't it be nice to live in a world where we just didn't need it and no one, no one needed the Merkava of any kind and everyone just had what they needed. So I wanna bless you to feel strengthened by the conversations so that you can explore the part you can continue to play in others having enough. And that sounds like a really, really good way to be. Thank you so much, Rabbi Menachem Creditor. This was so amazing to learn with you. And I know uh, so much to think about here. And um, we look forward to continuing our opportunity to learn from you. And thank you all for joining us. We have so many more learning opportunities coming up. We hope you'll continue to join us. We'll see you next week. Have a great rest of your day. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. Wonderful. <laughs> thank you, Barbara.